This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Is your child struggling with a specific subject or need help with homework? Are they asking questions that you're not sure you can fully answer? IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids. It covers math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed. This program will improve your kids' grades. Studies done in almost every state in the country. The kids who had IXL are consistently doing better. Powered by advanced algorithms, IXL gives the right help to each kid no matter the age or personality. And it doesn't have to eat up all your time. One subscription gets you everything for all the kids in your home, pre-K to 12th grade. So don't miss out. One in four students in the U.S. are learning with IXL. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXL.com audio. Visit IXL.com audio to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. Introducing the two-way V4, where groundbreaking fuel cell technology meets fresh foam cushioning for the ultimate performance. With fuel cell, each step feels explosive, delivering unparalleled energy return. Paired with fresh foam, experience maximum comfort throughout the game. It's lightweight textile upper offers support and breathability without sacrificing agility. Whether you're hitting the clutch shot or locking down the opposition, the two-way V4 gives you the tools to play at a high level. Learn more and purchase the two-way for yourself at newbalance.com. Hey, what's up? Hello, everybody. Welcome to Roll Pod, an Alabama sports podcast from Bama 247. I am staff writer Cody Goodwin, and I'm glad you're here. Happy Friday. Busy weekend in Alabama sports coming up. Opening day for Alabama baseball. Um, Alabama softball kicked off uh, last weekend, but there are roads for their home opening weekend. Both men's and women's hoops are at home this weekend. The men play Texas A&M. The women play Auburn, the Iron Bowl of women's basketball. I don't know if that's uh, what we call that, but maybe. That's on Sunday if you're into that kind of thing. Men play on Saturday. Today's show, we're going to talk some hoops. We're also going to talk some football. We are joined by Mike Rodak. Mike, this is our 50th episode of Roll Pod. Can you believe it? I'm I'm floored. I just, I can't. It's, uh, when did we start? September? Like I yeah, like late August, early August. September. I think the first two right. episodes so were, were like, like previewing football. Seven months into it, maybe. Yeah. Fifty episodes so or seven months. All right. I like it. I like the pace we're on. It's that fifty divided by seven, about seven shows per month. Um yeah. ish. You know, like some weeks we had three, some weeks like this week we had one because um you were out on vacation, you were at Disney. Um, I'm battling yeah. a small cough. Um, and we wanted to give Brett a break from recruiting stuff because Lord knows he he could probably use a break after everything that he's been doing since, what, December? Um, so, yeah, we're here with just one episode this week. Going to um, talk some basketball because men's hoops entering the home stretch of their season. Seven games left in the regular season, starting with Saturday's game against Texas A&M. Tip-off at 11 a.m. Central at Coleman. Uh, we'll get to that hoops conversation on the second half of today's show. Mike, I wanted to start here. Earlier this week, uh, Matt Zenitz reported that Alabama has filled 
its offensive coordinator position, promoting Nick Sheridan up from tight ends coach. He takes over after Ryan Grubb left to become the OC for the Seattle Seahawks. We'll talk about Sheridan, what that could mean for Alabama in a moment, but I first wanted to talk about Grubb and the trend that we're seeing more and more college coaches leaving for the NFL. Grubb is merely one in a long line of college coaches who have left for the NFL this hiring cycle. Scott Huff, who is expected to be Alabama's offensive line coach, is joining Grubb in Seattle. Tommy Reese, Alabama's former offensive coordinator, recently joined the Cleveland Browns. I think that was a little bit more out of he was out of a job in Tuscaloosa, but longtime college assistant, now in the pro game. If you look around the college landscape, you'll find plenty of examples, right? Jim Harbaugh left Michigan to go to the L.A. Chargers. Jeff Halfley, Boston College to become Green Bay Packers defensive coordinator. Um, you look down the list, Charlie Mullen went from Illinois to the New York Giants. Doug Mallory from Michigan to the Baltimore Ravens. Jay Harbaugh went from Michigan to Seattle. Charlie Partridge, Pittsburgh to the Indianapolis Colts. Liam Cohen, who I know has kind of bounced back and forth between the pro and the college game. He's now with Tampa Bay. Um on and on and on and on and on. There's plenty of examples all around the country. There have been a few coaches that have migrated from the program to the pro game to the college game, but the vast majority of these coaching moves um, are going from college to the pros. There's a ton of reasons for this that we're probably going to get into, but Mike, I do wonder if this is something that college football fans and just the sport in general should be worried about. What do you think? Uh, you know, I think to a certain extent, maybe not to the extent that you might see out there, um, kind of portrayed on Twitter. You know, I, I think back to when I first started covering the NFL and I remember Chip Kelly going from um, Oregon and eventually going where the 49ers uh, or the Eagles first. I All this blends together already, but um, Chip Kelly was like supposed to be bringing, so he went to Oregon to the Eagles and the Eagles to the 49ers. And so Chip Kelly is supposed to be part of this new wave of, of college coaches bringing that spread offense and, the no huddle offense to the NFL and, you know, completely flamed out. Um, you know, there's been a few others college coaches that have, you know, they've, they've tried in the pros. Um, you know, Matt rule was a disaster in Carolina. Um, and there's been a few others that off the top of my head, I can't really remember, but this was, this was a while ago. Um, yeah. you know, a guy named Nick Saban, he tried, he tried the pro game, came back to college. Things worked out for him. Right. Right. And, you know, there's different circumstances. Like, I don't know if Saban would have gone back to college if he didn't have the NFL job waiting for him. Uh, you know, you had Bill O'Brien going from the Patriots when I was covering them to, to Penn State. Uh, and he's bounced back and forth, too. Um, yeah. I mean, Doug Marone, when I my first year covering the Bills, they had just hired him from Syracuse. Uh, Urban Meyer was, was a disaster in um, in Jacksonville. Greg Schiano was not that great in Tampa. Um you know, Cliff Kingsbury is kind of a college guy who was decent for a little while in Arizona and didn't really work out. Um, I'm looking at, you know, winning percentages right now of college NFL coaches since 2000, only two of them, Bill O'Brien and Jim Harbaugh are over 500. So, you know, What's, there was, uh, this is, yeah. I was going to say this, this is another, you know, it's been a while, but Pete Carroll made the jump from USC to Seattle, right? right. Like I mean, he was able to win at both levels, a uh, pretty regular basis for the most part. Right. And I don't know why, uh, honestly, I'm not really sure why he, uh, he left, why this, he's not included on that list, but yeah, he he's was probably been at Seattle long enough where it's like, you know, mm -hmm. also like the things he did at USC caused Reggie to lose his Heisman. So, you know, right. But point being is that, this isn't new. Like it's been going on for a while. And quite frankly, it's even slowed down in terms of NFL teams hiring head coaches directly from college. 
that has not really happened a lot recently. Um, you know, really rule was the last one and that didn't work. And a lot of NFL teams would much rather develop a coach, especially offensive minded quarterbacks, coaches. And that's where a lot of the head coaches come from these days from the NFL system. Um, so really it's gone the other direction. I would say in the NFL, in terms of head coaches being hired directly out of college. But I think uh, there is maybe somewhat of a noticeable exodus. That's not even the right word or noticeable amount of coaches leaving from college to NFL, not becoming head coaches, but becoming lower level coaches and trying to work their way up that way. And yeah, I, I think that is a thing. Um, yeah. I, I think partly it might be due to the college game in some respects, becoming a little bit closer to the pro game and the pro game adopting some of the aspects of college. It used to be like, and it, again, it's it, every school is different. Every offense is different, but it used to be like 15 years ago, close to that when I was covering the NFL, like college offenses were just so simple and you couldn't really replicate what they were doing in the NFL. Now there is a lot of replication going on. And um, you know, especially even this year, we'll see, the ACC's already done it. I think the NCAA is going to pass it in a couple of weeks, the headsets and the helmets. And that's going to be another aspect where the NFL and the college game become a lot closer. And so that learning curve, I think, has changed. I think it's smaller for a coach like Ryan Grubb going from really Washington to Seattle, um, you know, in, in terms of what's going to be different. You know, like I think there's more of a realistic chance of his offensive system working in the NFL than maybe 10 years ago, that would have been the case. So um, I think that's part of it. And then, yeah, there's the obvious recruiting, um, you know, the, the quality of life and and the lifestyle, you know, the pay is going to be similar for a high level college assistant or high level college coordinator to an NFL assistant or coordinator. So that's not going to be an issue. Um, and then you don't have to deal with recruiting high school kids. <laughs> you don't have to deal with the ridiculous aspects of recruiting that have come up in the last few years here. So I think that's an even bigger um, draw than it used to be because you could recruit a kid out of high school. You won't have to worry about him for a couple of years. You won't have to worry in most cases about paying him. Um, and now you do. And it's just a constant barrage of, agents and high school coaches and parents and all that calling you and, and, and trying to leverage you and, and all the things that happen now these days with NIL and the portal. And I'm absolutely certain a, a lot of these coaches get sick of that. And they also get sick of dealing with the people within their own university sphere that you're trying to get money from constantly. And that's something that even Jeff Halfley mentioned, you know, from going from Boston college to the Packers. So that's, that's part of it. And I think this, the simplest change that the NCAA can make, if they still exist, is not having all the onus on recruiting on the road go on the assistant coaches. And this is something even Courtney Morgan mentioned on you know the athletic podcast um, that he did after he got hired by Alabama. Like, let the personnel staff go on the road and scout and recruit. That's ultimately what they're there for. But there's still this archaic rule that it can only be the assistant coaches and you can only have 10 of them. And that's another thing I think is going to change too. And we've heard chatter about that for a few years about the number of on-field assistants that, that rule going away. So 
it's a problem right now. Like your assistant coach, you're one of few, you're only one of 10 on the staff and you have all this onus of recruiting on you. That's probably not going to be true in a couple of years. And whether that's because the NCAA has changed its rules or whether there is no NCAA or whether there's a separate entity now with the SEC and big 10 and whatever the case may be, that doesn't have those rules about coaches recruiting and number of on-field assistants, it's going to be different in a couple of years. So maybe there's coaches in, in the NFL, if you're a quality control coach for the Broncos and um, you could become a, a wide receivers coach for Alabama or Ohio state or something like that, that could actually be a better opportunity for you in a few years. If this system is redone um, and a lot of these problems are fixed. So that's, it's long winded, but I, I do think it's multifaceted and I don't think it's just a very simple, Oh, there's all these, college coaches bolting for the NFL, you know, is this a problem for the game? I think it's, it's a lot more nuanced than that. Yeah, no. And I just, I think it's a little bit more noticeable this cycle than maybe previously. And, you know, I, to, you know, you mentioned Jeff Halfley's comments, Ryan Grubb made similar comments in his introductory press conference with Seattle. Um, you know, first and foremost, he had made the comment that like, you know, the bigger factor is being able to compete on the highest level. If you aspire to do anything in sports or in life in general, like you want to be able to do it at the highest level that you can, you want to try and be the best that you can be. Totally understand that. Coaches have been doing that forever. That totally makes sense. But somebody also asked him like, hey, the, the demands of the college game, like how big of a factor was that in him deciding to go now? And he was straight, he was just like, yeah, it was a factor. You know, when you're talking about coaching, your profession, your craft, the more ability and time you have to focus on the task at hand, the better you're going to be at that. These are Ryan Grubb's words. The tough part for college football, when you're thinking about coaching your room and your team, the focus you're able to give your squad right now, just your team, that's all you're worried about. You don't have all these things coming in from the outside that you don't have to deal with and address. It gives you more opportunity to be better at your craft and provide more resources for your team. Quick follow-up question. Somebody asked if it was sustainable. He kind of chuckled and said, that's a longer conversation. They have to get it fixed. It has to get better. Um, so you know, obviously that played a factor into him. I, he also went on to say that, you know, he was in Alabama, he was in Tuscaloosa. That was his focus on being Alabama's offensive coordinator until it wasn't. I know that's a conversation you and I have had that, you know, he was Alabama's OC until he became Seattle's OC, um, you know, and, and the, you know, he, he also talked about how the timing was a little less than ideal. The timing for these things are almost never perfect. Um, you know, but I wonder, you know, how how long is it going to take college football to fix this, whether that's the NCAA making changes, whether that's, you know, the college football playoffs spinning off to kind of becoming the the football entity that kind of governs the sport. Um, you know, some of those little changes that you were talking about to maybe help ease the burden on coaches and try to make everything a little bit better. I, you know, I, I wonder if this, you know if they don't get fixed, how much more of this will we see? Or if they do fix it, you know, does, does Ryan Grubb stay at Alabama? You know, I, I, I'm of the belief that he's always wanted to have an NFL coordinator job. So he was probably going to leave whenever the timing worked. Um, you know, but a lot of these other coaches that are jumping ship, you know, maybe because of all the factors with college football now, um, you know, I wonder if they stick it out, if, you know, they get a little bit of help and this sport is not as ridiculous, like the month of December specifically, that was something that Courtney Morgan talked about in that athletic interview, the month of December sucks, you know, Nick and Saban how much, too. say it again, Saban too. I mean, Saban, I think the month of December might've been the final nail in the coffin as far as his, his coaching career. Um, because you could just tell he was, he was worn down from, from everything else happening. Yeah. And like a lot of these guys, like, you know, you and I have talked to enough college coaches, some of these guys just want to coach ball, you know, and then when you got to worry about recruiting, 
you know, whether it's high school kids, transfer portal, your own roster, you know, all these kids wanting different NIL deals, you know, their NIL agents coming at you trying to figure out X, Y, and Z, like, you know, no wonder Nick Saban got tired. Right. And so like, I just, I wonder like I, if this cycle just, maybe it's just me, my first year covering college football at this high of a level, like it just seems like there's a little bit more. And I wonder how much more common this will be with coaching cycles moving forward. If they don't get some of these little things fixed for college football. Yeah. And there's a few things in there and I'll start with, you know, I think there's some people you might read or, or hear from that might say like, why would you leave Alabama to go to the NFL? And I think we talked about this on the last podcast. Like it, it yeah, it's Alabama, but the NFL is the NFL and the NFL is only getting bigger. Uh, it's only getting more popular. Um, you know, this past Super Bowl last weekend was the most watched TV show of all time. 133 million people, I think, is is what the final number was, if that sounds right. It was like one, uh, 123 million on average. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, like the NFL is not going anywhere. Like it's hands down right. America's most popular sport. And you could argue it's on its way to challenging soccer is maybe one of the world's most popular sports. Right, right. And so, you know, even you go back to, let's say, like SEC championship was um, – 17 million national championship in Alabama and Georgia was 28 million. So you're talking five, six times as many viewers for a Super Bowl than there is for a college football national championship. Um, that's a stage that I think a lot of coaches want to be on. And that's, that's the NFL stage. I even saw something else. I think I mentioned that stat last thing. The first 80, the top 80 TV shows. Um, NFL all, broadcast. NFL, right. I forget the exact stat, but like the NFL had like every single. Yeah, like 80 of the top 100 highest mm-hmm. viewed broadcasts of all time NFL games. Yeah. I mean, it's just, and it's only getting bigger every single year. So um, I know in, in Birmingham, it's like a very different place. Like there was even a stat this week I saw um, that was a Sanford University study about what people care about. It was like college football, the NFL, Taylor Swift was on there. <laughs> and Birmingham was like the one city that had college football ahead of the NFL in relation to some of its peers that were on that list. It was Atlanta, Charlotte, Nashville. Uh, there's a few other cities that I, that I saw. And, you know, that's, again, it's, it's kind of the bubble of Alabama where college sports is number one. But I think sometimes people forget that, the world is a little bit bigger in terms of football. Ryan Grubb's not from here. He's from the Midwest. He's coached in the Pacific Northwest. Like these coaches don't have that emotional attachment to Alabama. They probably don't have quite the emotional attachment to certainly the SEC, but maybe college football in general. And it's just, it's not going to draw them in quite as much as hell, even a Dabo Swinney, like from Birmingham, like, you know, played at Alabama, like he's college football through and through. Like I can't imagine him going to the NFL, but again, the world is a lot bigger than that, than that bubble. So um, it does not surprise me in the least that a coach would leave Alabama to go to the NFL. Um, The other part of that was the Ryan Grubb comment, you know, that that he made at the Red Elephant Club. And look, I said from the start, like I don't think that it was uh, what it appeared to be. And I know a lot of people kind of took it and ran, and I, you know, I compared it to, you know, Terry and Arnold after the Rose Bowl, where he kind of mentioned in passing that we have unfinished business and never said he was coming back. 
and everybody kind of latched on to him he'll saying be he'll be here business. right and you see all these graphics that people make on on social media and you know i don't want to say reputable news outlets but certainly people that Content probably should know better yeah right Pro people should probably know better than to make a graphic that says terry and arnold says he's returning to alabama because he said Un unfinished business and then when terry on says I'm not coming back and I'm going to the draft, which was his plan all along. Obviously it makes him look bad because people saw those graphics and they thought that he said he was coming back and it looks like he's reneging on something when he never was. And this is a little bit different of a situation. I, I do think Ryan Grubb probably could have avoided saying what he did um, just from a linguistic standpoint. You know, you don't have to necessarily say those words that I am your next offensive coordinator, but um you know, all the assistant coaches spoke at this event. They were all introduced. It, you probably could have just left it at whoever was introducing you saying, this is Ryan Grubb, the new offensive coordinator. You don't have to say it yourself. The quote doesn't have to go out there. And it doesn't really look as bad for you. But the same thing is true in terms of he never said, I'm always going to be your offensive coordinator. And I'm, you know, I'm, I'm here forever. Like it's, I think anybody can understand that if you're, in line or a candidate for a job, you're probably not going to start saying that's your job, even though you don't have it yet. And you're not going to say that the job you have is your former job because you haven't left yet. So from a logical standpoint, it made perfect sense that he would say he's the offensive coordinator of Alabama because that's what he was. And the same thing would hold true for Chip Kelly when he was at UCLA until the minute that he took the job at Ohio State, until the minute that Bill O'Brien took the job at Boston College, they're going to say they were what they were because that's what they were. Um, so that's just – it doesn't surprise me. Again, I think he could have avoided it. Um, but even I think yesterday at his press conference, he said he told Austin Mack, like, I, I may not be here that long. Um, it's may only be a one-year thing. It may be a two-year thing. And even if Ryan Grubb did not get hired as the head coach of the Seattle Seahawks or as the offensive coordinator of the Seattle Seahawks, he could be in line. He would have been in line, I think, for a head coaching job pretty soon here. Um, he was already considered maybe briefly for the Washington job. And the next opening that came open this fall or this winter, he would be high on that list, I would imagine. So, um, and maybe he still will. So it, maybe you get Ryan Grubb for, for one year in the best case scenario, but it was never going to be a long-term thing. And, um, you know, I think the bigger question for me is how wide of a net did, um, did Kalen DeBoer cast in terms of trying to replace Ryan Grubb? Or is this always the plan that if Grubb left, Sheridan would be his guy? Um I don't know if there's any serious thought or conversations around Kirby Moore. And, you know, it's a question of, do you bring in somebody else? You you have to learn your system. You'd have to work with like, that's, that's a whole different animal. So, um, yeah, I, I do think there's legitimate questions about Nick Sheridan, given yeah. his track record, um, and his inexperience, especially in the SEC. And we'll have to see how that all works out. But, um, Again, I, I don't know if it's like if there was ever going to be a scenario where Ryan Grubbs, your offensive coordinator for the next three years. Like, I, I just don't think that was ever going to be true. Yeah. Well, and, you know, to your point, at the time that the Alabama staff met with the Red Elephant Club, which is where he made those comments, he was Alabama's offensive coordinator. So he didn't lie. 
you know, he, he was Alabama's offensive coordinator, like you've said multiple times. He was Alabama's OC until he wasn't. And that's, right. that's just kind of the way it goes. I, I admit, like, you know, not admit, but like I agree with you that maybe shouldn't have made those comments in though in in the way that maybe he said it, but at the same time, like he wasn't lying at the time that he had said that. So it's also one of those things that and I, I love the next round, like friends of the show. Uh, I don't think typically coaches get quoted um, at those events. Um, so f- to see that quote be out there on Twitter was a little bit surprising. Again, I'm not faulting them. Like you're talking to the guy that was quoting Nick Saban at you know the um, the Jimbo Fisher night, but um, yeah, I I don't know if Ryan Grubb necessarily knew that was going to be broadcast to the entire country. I, you know, I think sometimes there's maybe an expectation realistically or not that it stays within that room but even then you have a lot of well-connected people in that room that would probably go to other people and say hey ryan grubb said he's he's the offensive coordinator but it's also one of those like no crap of course he's the offensive coordinator like what else is he? <laughs> like that's that's kind of what my response was when i saw that i'm like well yeah it's like what do you think he's gonna say he's a defensive coordinator <laughs> like, um but yeah i don't know it's one of those things that I think got, got overblown from the start just because people were excited and wanting to latch on to whatever they could, whatever shred of good news there, there was to be had about Ryan Grubb. And um, there was always, I think, a, a likely, if not, you know, almost done certainty that he was going to be the, the next Seahawks coach. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Hello, everyone. It's Mike Richards here. You might have seen me on CBS working on their Champions League coverage over the last couple of years. I wanted to tell you about an exciting new podcast that I've been working on. It's called The Rest is Football. It's me, alongside Gary Lineker and Alan Shearer, two absolute legends of the game. The show combines topical debate from the world of soccer along with outrageous tales from our careers. And I mean, outrageous. Just search the rest is football wherever you get your podcasts. All the best from Big Meats. It's the NFL offseason, but on Pick 6, part of the CBS Sports Podcast Network, the football season never stops. Host Will Brinson, John Breach, and Tyler Sullivan are joined by analysts like Brady Quinn, Leslie Ducible, Katie Mox, and R.J. White to keep you in the loop on everything happening around the league. Whether it's free agents signing with new teams, the all-important NFL draft, or schedule release day, Pick 6 has you covered. As the face of the league changes with every team move and player pickup this spring, Pick 6 is a must-listen. Download and follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, the Odyssey app, and anywhere podcasts are found. Uh, Nick Sheridan was tapped to be Alabama's new offensive coordinator, elevated from tight ends coach. Um, previously worked with DeBoer at Indiana during that 2019 season when DeBoer was the offensive coordinator. Nick Sheridan, this is actually a funny story. He was the quarterback's coach for Tom Allen, um, the year before DeBoer showed up, um, DeBoer gets hired. Uh, Tom Allen was telling me last week that, you know, Hey, Nick didn't, you know, Nick was the QBs coach. 
Um, but DeBoer traditionally has worked with quarterbacks previously. Um, and Tom Allen went to Nick Sheridan and said, Hey man, like we're going to let DeBoer work with quarterbacks. Can you shift to tight ends? Sheridan was a little hesitant about that, but ultimately did that 2019 Indiana offense benefited from it. Uh, when DeBoer left the next year to go to Fresno state, that's when Nick Sheridan was promoted to Indiana's offensive coordinator for the next two years under Tom Allen. I, I agree with you. I think there's a lot of questions here because uh, you look at what DeBoer did with that Indiana offense in 2019. They were very, very good, right? Like they had Michael Penix, um, you know, they jumped, you know, I want to say 40 spots to top 50 total offense in the country. Um, that Indiana team won eight games for the first time in, you know, almost three decades. The next year when Sheridan's only the OC, um, they took a step back. They took a pretty ginormous step back. The year following that, because he was OC for two years, took another step back. So a little worrisome maybe if you're Alabama. I know that there's a couple caveats with why maybe Indiana's offense took a step back those couple years, had some quarterback injuries, had some other injuries, like just seemed like it was a lot of bad news all around for those Indiana teams. Um, you know, because his first year there when Nick Sheridan was the OC after DeBoer left, I think Indiana still went 6-2. and two. It was the COVID-shortened season, but, you know, they climbed to – you know, top 15 in the country in the national polls. But then it was the season after that where they dealt with a bunch of injuries and, and things just kind of went sideways in a hurry. Um, so a little worrisome about that. I think if, you know, if you're an Alabama fan, the one thing that should maybe give you a little bit of hope is that DeBoer is still going to be there. And he has a fantastic track record as offensive coordinator, as a guy who can draw up schemes and game plans, as a guy who works with quarterbacks in virtually every aspect of the offense. Um, I think that should give Alabama fans a little bit of hope that, hey, like, this is probably DeBoer's offense. It's going to run through him. He's going to be the the guy that's scheming things up. He's going to be the guy that's constructing the game plan week to week. My guess is he will probably play a large role, if not just go ahead and take over play calling duties. Um, those are my quick thoughts. Do you have any other lingering thoughts about Sheridan as OC DeBoer sticking around, obviously, as the primary offensive guy in the room? Yeah, you know, I think the last time we did a podcast, we I kind of mentioned – it's like Belichick and Brady. Like these guys have been around each other for for so long, Grub and and DeBoer, that you don't really know how to divvy up credit. Um, and they've they've obviously been very good wherever they went, but they've also been together, with the lone exception of um, Indiana. You know, twenty nineteen DeBoer was at Indiana, Grub was at Fresno. Um, other than that, you know, Fresno, Eastern Michigan. Um, you know, DeBoer had a few years at, at Southern Illinois uh, when uh, Grubb was was still at Sioux Falls. But, um, you know, they've, they've been tied at the hip. So this this is uh, where we're going to see, you know, and both of them could be good. Like, it's not necessarily either or. Like, one of them is responsible and one of them is just a poser. Like, they both could be uh, good at what they do. So, you know, we're going to see. I think, you know, once you separate some of these things, you you start to see and, um, you know, I think it's, it's still, there is, there's always layers to it. Like who's your offensive line coach? What's your talent level at, on along the offensive line, which, you know, there's still a problem at, at tackle, I would say, um, you know, you have a lot of new players trying to fit in with each other. Parker Brailsford playing with Booker and Roberts, who he's never played with before. You have two new tackles, probably you have, wide receiver is going to be looking different. Um, you know, how quickly does Ryan Williams come in? How does your running game look like with Justice Haynes and Jay Miller? What's your quarterback situation? How does your quarterbacks get along with Nick Sheridan? 
Uh, I mean, there's just a lot of variables and, um, and the same thing's true on a defensive side. Not that we're talking about that, but you have a bunch of coaches who really haven't coached together on a defensive side either. And a bunch of freshmen potentially playing big, big roles. So, you know, the over under the overlying theme, I would, I would say is it's expect all of this just to come together magically by September and look like a, a well-oiled machine. That's going to win the sec when you go to Wisconsin or when you play Georgia on September 28th, like that's not the most realistic expectation in my mind. There's, just a lot of new parts and pieces to fit together here. And there was last year. And that's something Tyler Booker was saying all along at the beginning of the year. Like we're not used to Tommy Reese. We're not used to some of these guys we're playing with. You could multiply that by 10 on what they're going to be facing this year with all the new coaches and systems and calls and checks and players. And it's, it's, it's going to be a lot. Um, you have 15 practices in the spring. You have 20 something in, in August and boom, you got to be ready to go. Um, so that's, you know, keep your expectations in check for September. And if they overperform, they have a great September. They beat Georgia. You know, they go to on the road to Wisconsin and they win. And hell, that's that's a really good result. But um, even if it's not, and you take a loss or two, I don't think it's it's the end of the world. The sky won't be falling here. Yeah. So we'll uh, got a lot of time to dive into that um, in the coming weeks. We'll probably start up some. Uh, spring ball preview pods. Um, we've got a lot of content coming on the Bama 247 site to look forward to that. Second half of today's show, wanted to talk a little bit of hoops. Um, Alabama men's basketball um, entering the final stretch of the regular season. First place, still atop the SEC. 17-7 and overall, 9-2 and in league play entering this week. Half game up on both Auburn and South Carolina. Full game up on Tennessee and two games up on Florida and Kentucky. They have a pretty... Um, I mean, you've mentioned this tougher schedule down the stretch here than maybe what they had in January, um, starting with Texas A&M on Saturday. They also have to play Florida twice. They have to go to Kentucky, to Ole Miss, um, and then they wrap up the season with Arkansas um, in early March before they get to the SEC championship game. Um, my gut feeling, Mike, kind of curious what you think. If they hold serve at home, Alabama, four of their seven last games here are going to be at home. Hold serve at home. You can find a way to steal two of three on the road. I think the Ole Miss game is probably primed to to win, so that would put you at five and two down the stretch here. If you can find a way to go six and one, you probably win the league. Five and two, I think, gives you a shot. But I think you know teams like Auburn, maybe even Tennessee, depending on their schedule, could also hit that fourteen win mark. But fifteen, I think, really puts you in good position to potentially win the league. What do you think about just Alabama's chances down the stretch here to win another SEC regular season title? Yeah. Um, and sorry, just as we've been talking here, I've been getting a few responses back from from Alabama on my records requests. And, and one of those was um, a, uh, a term sheet, anything that they agreed to with with Ryan Grubb. And they said there was no responsive records on that. So interesting. Apparently, Ryan Grubb never signed anything <laughs> um, is what Alabama says. So yeah. Um, and six and one. Yeah. Six and one. I think yeah, that would do it. Um, you know, there might be a situation where Auburn runs the table and they would finish. They would both finish with three losses. You would split the tiebreaker um, because, you know, you want one and one. And then it would come down to how you fared against the the number one. In that case, probably the number three through number 16 seeds. You just go down the list and, and check your records. Either way, it would be a 
a co-SEC title. Um, you know, it, the the tiebreaker would just only apply to it would decide uh, who the one and two seeds are. Right. Yeah, the seed, which at the end of the day is not really that important. It just depends on who you play and, and what time you play. You know, on Friday at the tournament. So yeah, I mean, either way, like they're in a good spot. I know Nate Oates loves talking about regular season SEC titles. I, I think it's a really good thing. It's a good goal to set. Um, they've won it twice, which is really good, but that's not the end goal. Um, right. and I'm not saying it, it's he's overlooking the end goal. I'm just saying if they don't win an SEC regular season title, I don't think it's it's the biggest deal in the world. Um, and if they go and win the tournament, if they go and make a deeper run in the NCAA tournament, then nobody will care that you didn't win regular season title. So, um, you know, six and one, five and two, five and two probably puts you in a position where you need Auburn to lose um, at least a game. Um, Tennessee, maybe to lose a game. You know, if you if you lose twice to Tennessee, that's probably worse in terms of a one loss, a one final loss for Alabama. If you take another loss to Tennessee, that's that's going to be bad for a tiebreaker. Um, if you beat Tennessee and lose to Ole Miss or Kentucky or Florida, you know, that's um, a little bit more helpful in terms of splitting the tiebreaker with Tennessee. But again, a lot of this stuff, you know, we talk about in February, by the time March rolls around, it's, it, it becomes relatively irrelevant and winning the SEC regular season title, winning the SEC tournament last year really didn't help Alabama beat San Diego state. And that's, <laughs> that's what matters. Like, and that's college basketball. It's, it's, can you get to March? And if you do get to March, can you win six games in a row? Um, and Alabama hasn't been able to do that under Nate out so far. And, and again, they've gone a lot further than previous coaches have, and that's, that's a really good thing. But, um, if they lose three of their next seven games, but then win every game after that, nobody will care that they, you lost three <laughs> games. Everybody will just care that you won every single game you needed to in March. So that's, that's what I have to say about that. No, I think that's that's totally fair. And we, we published a Bama 247 roundtable where we all kind of discussed, you know, what does Alabama need to do to maintain their position, but also, you know, what's going to be the biggest factor in their postseason success. I think we were all pretty much, um, you know, defense, right? Like we, we know this offense is going to score points. Um, we know that most efficient offense in college basketball, according to Kempom, they have routinely been there, either number one or number two the entire season. Um, defense has not been there, right? Like I ranked 73rd in adjusted defensive efficiency. According to Kempom, um, at one point in time, they were the worst scoring defense in the sec. They still have a lot of moments where it's just, you know, they're just not getting stops and they're just outscoring people. I, you and I have both talked about how that's, you know, you can try and live that way in the postseason, but that is a huge gamble because one cold shooting night and your season's over. Um, do we think now that we're into mid-February, there's seven games left in the regular season, like, is there a viable path for them to make the necessary adjustments defensively? Or do we just think that this is, kind of, are they just going to have to outscore people down the stretch here? Like, what do we think, you know, can, what can they do to improve the defense to give them a shot at a pretty deep run in March? Yeah, you know, I, I think I said this back in January, like the more data points you continue to collect about this team, whether it was playing Purdue, playing Arizona, playing Creighton, playing Tennessee, playing Auburn twice, the more data points you saw, the more you questioned how they'd be able to perform against high-level teams. And, um, you know, last week's loss to Auburn, I don't think changed that. Like, I, I think it was another data point that you play a really good team and you lose and you have problems on defense and, 
the same things keep happening in terms of letting a big man, you know, run all over you, then the more you have to wonder if that's just the team you are and that's just what you're going to have to be um, without Charles Bediaco and um, trying to use Grant Nelson at the five, which has kind of been their, their move recently. And you have a smaller lineup. You're not rebounding as well. Um, you know, you need Grant Nelson to be that guy underneath. And I don't know if he's magically going to turn into that, you know, on February 16th where he's playing that way in March 20th, like, I just don't know if that's going to happen. Like he's kind of is the player that he is. And that's not really a, a, a in the paint big man. He's not really a rim protector. He's a lanky outside shooter and driver. So, um, you know, they've tried different things. I mean, if Nick Pringle somehow gets way back on track from where he was a couple weeks ago, then that helps. But even then Nick Pringle's not really a, known for his defense he's he's kind of an explosive above the rim um athletic big man so they don't really have that guy in their roster i mean Mohamed wage is is the closest match but he's had problems with following so it for to all come together magically where they need it to i just don't know like i think they are what they are and yes there's a capability there's a possibility they can outscore teams and you have a really good shooting night where Griffin's going off and Sears is going off, Estrada, right? So maybe Nelson too. Like you can put up 85, 90, 95 points, but you got to be able to defend too. And if you're giving up 90, 95, 100, then you're still going to lose. So if you ask me right now, like what happens to this team, I, I still think they're a team that probably loses on the second weekend of the tournament when you, you're playing a really good, you know, sweet 16 or early at eight team. Um, but you never know. It, weird things happen. That's kind of the beauty of, of March Madness is, is the unpredictability of it. But um, I just don't see it in terms of this defense suddenly turning into what they haven't been so far. Yeah. Well, and I just, you know, I'd go as far to say that, like, if they don't, if they can't even get subtle improvement, right? Like, that, you don't need an elite defense for how good this offense is. You just need a defense that can get enough stops on the other end so that your offense can do what it does. Um, there, I mean, there's a realistic shot that like, if they just, if they get the wrong matchup and they go cold, they're not getting out of the first weekend. Like that's, right. that's the nature of the beast. They could also, you know, have the most perfect draw and shoot their way to, you know, tie game with four minutes left in the elite eight. Like you just, you never know. Like that's like you said, that's the beauty of March madness, but you look at, you know, kind of where they're trending, Joe Lenardi, I think, has them on the three line or somewhere between the three and the four line, looking at his latest projection. So they have him on the three line in the West region. Kansas is your two seed. I'm not sure you want – like, that's that's your Sweet 16 matchup. I'm not sure that, you know, they're getting through that if they can get there, right? The other teams in their quad, Moorhead State, um, Ole Miss, they seem to have been found out in SEC play, but also Florida Atlantic and Gonzaga. Gonzaga usually traditionally has a big man. You look at the, you know, if they somehow drop to the four line, you look at the number one seeds, Arizona, they've played Houston's bowling, the big 12, UConn, similar mold, but they're very versatile offensively. And then obviously Purdue is another team that they played this season. Like there's just, it seems like, you know, you can see them get into the second weekend, but then they're going to have to play a team with a big man. And that's where I'm just like, I just don't think they got the dudes to do it or they better shoot 60% from the floor that night. Like that's, you know, and when you're living that way, I just, I feel like that's just a little too dangerous and, you know, keep going back to the defense. Like I think I wrote this earlier, it's very reminiscent of 
the, you know, I'm a football guy, very reminiscent of the Chiefs when Patrick Mahomes was finally the starter at quarterback. The only defense that could stop those Chiefs teams was its own because they couldn't stop anybody. And so they just limited the ceiling of that team. I kind of look at this Alabama team in the same way. This offense is going to score its points. If the defense can't get stops, this team's in trouble. Um, and so that could mean out on the first weekend. That could also mean you know, four minutes from the final four. I don't know. It kind of depends on the draw, but that's kind of, I don't like that variability of my basketball team going into March Madness if I'm an Alabama fan, because you just, you don't know what you're going to get, you know, as good as the offense and steady and consistent and efficient as they've been all year. I don't know. That's a tricky game to play. And that's a gamble that I don't, I don't like put it that way. Yeah. And sometimes it's just, you have to trust your gut on what a team is. And I remember two years ago with this team, um, there was issues, you know, different sorts of issues, but chemistry-wise, and they were kind of smaller in the backcourt. They had trouble um, shooting the three. They had trouble defending in some cases, and that all just played out. Like, they went into San Diego, and they were a higher-seeded team, but you just had the sense they weren't going to beat Notre Dame. And that's what happened. And sometimes just what you think is going to happen is what happens. So, um you know, again, the more data points you have, the bigger sample size you have on this team, there's still questions. And even with the game that they had against LSU, you know, they had issues with the big man in, in the first half, the seven-foot guy, Will Baker. They scored, outscored LSU in the second half and were able to win that way. Um, but, you know, the Auburn game was, was bad and the Georgia game was very ugly for a while. And you just have to wonder what's going to happen against Kentucky. You're going to have to wonder the two Florida games. Florida just annihilated Auburn. Um, they went on the road and beat Kentucky. And I know that Kentucky's not the team that they used to be at home, but like that's still a hard thing to do. And they made it look pretty easy. Ole Miss is a much better team. They're 13 and one at home. Um, with Chris Beard, that's going to be a huge game on, on the road for Alabama. You, you get a second uh, crack at Tennessee. I think you like the right. fact that that game's at home, but still, that's, you know. Right. And Tennessee's been beatable. I mean, there's been a few teams now that have beaten them. And that actually, if you had me rank the toughest games for Alabama, even though Tennessee might be the best team on that list, I don't know if that's the toughest game. Um, I think one of those road games probably would be. Um, and, you know, Arkansas is kind of a sneaky team where they should be a lot better than what they are. They're three and eight. That team has been a top two or three team in the SEC the last few years. They have the talent to do it. If you told me they came into Coleman Coliseum, March, whatever it is, and, and won that Saturday, like, I think they're very much capable of doing that. So, you know, the back half of the schedule, as we've talked about, I think is tougher. Um, and uh, we'll see that play out. You know, I, I, I would still be surprised if, if, if this Alabama team runs the table. Um, me too. But, the, I mean, you know, the one thing that really, you know, again, I know I've said this before, they're 9-2 and two in the SEC yeah, they got battered pretty bad against both Tennessee and Auburn. Those are their two conference losses. This is an Alabama team that has yet to have like a silly head scratching loss. Like, and I think there's something to be said about that. Um, you know, if you're looking for the optimistic side here, um, that's why I think five and two is probably realistic down the stretch. Um, you know, and you know, maybe, you know, if you really want to be optimistic about it, if they're the three or the four seed, I think fair expectation to say that, Hey, they should get to the second weekend. They should get to the second weekend just because they, they seem to beat the teams that they should. And they just can't seem to beat the teams that they, you know, aren't expected to beat. And just, again, 
like you mentioned, more data points. Just seems like maybe that's the book on this Alabama team this season. And, you know, you just hope that they can just do what they're supposed to do or live up to their seating um, by the time we get to March. And, you know, it just kind of, you know, put themselves in position and see what they can do um, on the second weekend, because that seems to be where they're projected to be. Any other final thoughts on men's hoops before we uh, tie a bow on this show? No, no, I think, uh, think we're good. We'll have to be watching the, uh, you know, the transfer portal, um, you know, with Keon Sab going in, you know, from Michigan, the safety who played at IMG, you know, with, obviously a few Alabama players, but he was his primary recruiter at Michigan um, was Courtney Morgan, you know, who's now the GM of Alabama. So he went into the portal on Friday morning, uh, former top 100 prospect, you know, has, has played a, a decent amount at Michigan. And obviously that's a position of need for Alabama um, with, with Caleb Downs and, and Jalen Key being gone. So um, we'll have to see where that one lands this weekend. A lot of available playing time for Keon Sab. If you uh, like, would would like to make a trip to Tuscaloosa, I know that like the the class schedule probably you know, like he. I don't know if he would show up until even after the semester's over. Just right, but I you know I, that would doubt at this point. I mean, we're halfway through the semester almost. Yeah. So, but I mean, hey, like if you know he wants to come join an Alabama secondary play for Kane Womack, um, there's a lot of available playing time. I think, especially at some of the safety spots in Alabama's defense. So I think that would be uh that would be a pretty big um, pickup for Alabama in the transfer portal. If that's what happens this weekend, we'll keep all our, our eye out. Um, but that's all we got on today's show. Mike, appreciate you joining us as always. We'll be back sometime early next week. Hopefully we'll get back on the two show schedule. Um, start to look a little bit ahead to spring ball, keep track on both men's and women's hoops. Women play Auburn on Sunday at Coleman. Um, so we'll uh, keep tabs on what happens there. In the meantime, though, be sure to rate and review the show wherever you listen to your podcast, Apple, Stitcher, Spotify, even our Bama 247 YouTube page. Subscribe to Bama 247 and 247 Sports. Feel like we're always running a special. Put a link to that in the show notes so you guys can take advantage of it. Um, thank you all again for listening. We'll talk to you all again soon.